How is that for our new October theme song? It's called Scorpio. Very fitting for this Halloween season that's about to be upon us. Thank you to my friend Anne Sophie Anderson, who actually composed the Scorpio music, but it comes from her composition called Seasons, where she goes through the different astrological signs. So definitely check out our episode notes and you will see a trailer for the music video, which will be premiering in the near future. Um, there is a dancer, Daisy Piera. Uh, the video is done by Cecily Beck Kromberg and the composer is Anne Sophie Anderson. Our theme for October is things that go bump in the night. So our interview today is definitely quite thrilling, quite steamy and quite spooky. And I think I'm actually joined by someone who's almost like a ghost on the screen with me. So Ooh. <laughs> it's just, I'm just kidding. It's just me, Mary, the chief contributor here at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, Mary I was also in on that interview and it is a treat, not yes. a trick. So what did we just come from, Mary? We actually just came from the book club where we got to talk to some really awesome people about the story and really give away way more spoilers than we did in this episode, in this interview. Yeah, and we do warn that this is an episode interview that contains a lot of spoilers. So you've been warned. Um, if you haven't read PJ Vernon's Bathhouse, you should read it right now, or at least make sure that you get that audiobook downloaded. Uh, so. I thank Mary so much for joining me at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room for this episode. Always. And we can announce now we have a November date. So for those of you who couldn't come to our October book club, our November book club, first Sunday of the month, November 7th, 5 p.m. is Stephen Rowley's The Gunkle. So look out for our new book club RSVP page on the website. And without further ado, because I think Mary... They've heard enough from us. They should really now hear from PJ Vernon and all the behind the scenes action and, you know, taking the mask off, which will be an important metaphor soon mm -hmm. in the interview. Okay, everyone, here is our first October book club interview with PJ Vernon. Ooh. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is a really exciting opportunity event. I'm actually joined here with my guest co-host, Mary DePippi. This is her first time joining me. So hi, Mary. Hello, everyone. <laughs> um, she already has a nice true crime voice. Okay, but we're really excited because we have in our midst PJ Vernon, uh, who is our first book club podcast choice. So we chose his novel, Bathhouse that was recently released, hot off the presses. And welcome PJ Vernon to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I have been looking forward to this um, a lot. Uh, as, as you know, 
Um, and I'm so excited to be here to finally be able to, to hang out with y'all in, in person, um, so to speak. So I'm ready to go. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm pumped, ready to go. Yeah, we are too. We are too. Mm -hmm. And uh, PJ is, is it okay if I call you PJ? Oh, okay. yeah, absolutely. Okay. I don't know the formality. <laughs> Mr. Vernon, oh, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> Sir Vernon. Uh, but PJ's been amazing with our Instagram promotions and Mary and I did some thirst trap bathhouse, um, iconography with our images, just because I think the novel really calls for <laughs> some queer aesthetic and, uh, breaking the boundaries. So we'll get into, oh, also there are going to be many spoilers here. So you know, pause right now if you haven't either A, read his book, or B, listened to the audiobook version, which Mary read the book and I listened to the audiobook version. So we wanted to split our ways of consuming Bathhouse. So more about the audiobook, because I have a lot of exciting things to say about that performance. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think Mary has you know, a biography question to ask. So I'll let, let you take of it away. Of course. Um, well, as a writer myself, I'm just always curious, was there a specific person or like piece of work or really what was it that made you want to become a writer? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think um, throughout my entire life, I've had a love for storytelling. Um, so I remember sort of being a kid and, you know, popping in the DVD and it's like, ah, it could be Ninja Turtles or Star Wars or whatever I was into. And it would play for like five minutes and I would immediately leave, go run upstairs, grab all my figures um, that corresponded with whatever I was watching. and would just sort of like play the story out however I wanted it to unfold, which was different. So it was always, you know, uh, make-believe games I played with neighborhood friends were always, you know, I was always interested in creating the story. There were these horrible, when I look back on them, they're like macabre. Um, sort of premises, you know, I'm like, okay, we're all like orphans and we have to escape this factory and, you know, where we make sludge and, you know, all these ridiculous sort of things. Um, but this idea that you could, you could engage other people's imaginations and whatever's in yours, um, you could kind of, you know, inspire in theirs, but through their lens. And, and you know, there's a, there's a real thrill to um, ha having someone else imagine something that you just completely um, made up but I uh, took a huge detour in life. Um, I'm actually an immunologist by training. Um, so I uh, went to, you know, I, uh, all my reading and, and writing was all, you know, obviously tethered to clinical studies and those kinds of things. So never took myself very seriously as a fiction writer and kind of put um, compartmentalized that sort of away. Um, and then I uh, moved to Canada for love. Um, and I had been working at the time um, in Texas for the Defense Department, um, and there wasn't really a job here um, uh, for me. Um, and so, you know, I abandoned gainful employment and was like, what the hell am I going to do with myself? Uh, and, you know, I'm like, well, I was in a bookstore at some point, um, looked around, it was like, holy, uh, I don't, do we? Oh, oh, you can curse. Know. Yeah, we don't censor. <laughs> it was like, holy shit. There's like a thousand, like, you know, thousands of, of titles. Thousands, I don't know why it took this long to occur to me. I would recognize none of these authors in the airport. Um, and so there was this, I carried around this idea that it's like, oh, you're either Stephen King or bust. Um, and it felt very inaccessible. And then at that moment, I was like, no, maybe this is accessible. Maybe I can do it. So I, um, my, my uh, rash decision, which I'm so thankful for, uh, to, to leave my job gave me the space um, and really forced me 
uh, to think about what I, what I really love. And that's when I started um, writing manuscripts um, with the intention of, of having other people um, read them for, for entertainment. Um, so that's sort of the, the short story of, of how, I, how I got started. For the first part of your question, as far as like inspiration and titles and those kinds of things, I, I say this frequently, it's, for me, it was Gillian Flynn. Um, it for kind of like I, you know, I had to see all these books to realize I could maybe do this too. When I, when I was introduced to, to Flynn's work, it was really the just visceral prose, the monstrous characters, um, the way that everything, you know, I think she said in an interview one time, she's always was that kid um, that looked under the rock or picked the log over to see what kind of, you know, unsavory things slither out. Um, which is, you know, very much uh, uh, my jam as well. And so when I saw that you could really go there and it, and it wasn't so much about, you know, let's get inside the mind of a serial killer. It was, let's get inside the mind of your mother. That's a dark place to be. I, I just, I fell in love with it. And I was like, I got it. I want to do this. I'll mention too, I was, I'd been reading um, when I was thinking about Bathhouse, uh, Second Life by S.J. Watson, which is a fabulous book. Um, which fought with, you know, it's, it's this woman and her sister passed, you know, is murdered and in an effort to track down um, what happened to her. She logs onto her, uh, like it's an equivalent of like a Tinder account. And of course it becomes a little too alluring and she gets wrapped up in all kinds of things. And I was like, I love this. I love all the, you know, the ideas of infidelity and all the and themes and power imbalances um, that are coming into play here. And I want to do this and I'll just like make it gay. Oh, and I also can say one other inspiration because you mentioned we're, we're spoiler. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, we're spoiling everything. Thank you for, for mentioning that because I never get to say this, but a huge inspiration um, for how the plot unfolds is Dial In For Murder. Um, the, the Hitchcock film, of course, there's yeah. The, yeah, the perfect murder. And I tried to pay homage to that a little bit in the book by having uh, someone get stabbed in the neck with sewing shares. Yep. <laughs> Well, and I actually, that's great because I was talking to Mary about, I, no, I said to Mary, this reminds me, Bathhouse, to me, is an out of the closet, strangers on a train. Um, yes. Like literally brings that, and if you don't know PJ, I'm writing my dissertation on homoerotic poetics on Whitman and Oscar Wilde and the whole genealogy of that. So I'm always interested when I approached Bathhouse, I was interested in this cruising dynamic and um, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue by Samuel Delaney about cruising in Times Square was really just in my mind. But I'm thinking, oh my gosh, PJ Vernon just really has taken the whole Gillian Flynn, Ruth Ware, um, psychological suspense genre, which is so popular. And I'm a huge fan of for pleasure reading, hence why I chose your book right away. But you really made it into a really interesting queer aesthetic. So, I mean, were you very inspired by Hitchcock? Yeah, I kind of, so my, my debut, the book I put up before this one was, um, I admit, maybe I don't know if we mentioned on the on air or not, but I, you know, I'm originally from South Carolina, so it's a Southern Gothic kind of book. Um, but, you know, at the time I was quite afraid to um, center it on a queer character like like me or a queer couple, like a relationship I, I might have uh, hypothetically found myself um, in. And there was something about, you know, 
I of course was wanted to take things into a different direction for the next book. The South has an extraordinary gravitational pull, as you know, um, and it's like once you start tapping into that, it's it can be it can be overwhelming and, and take over work, and like that's your thing now. Um, and so I wanted it to be gay, which was going to be a huge departure. Um, but also, um, I didn't want to set it in the South, and so I, you know, I was thinking through, you know, the kinds of stories I love. Of course, Hitchcock um, is a huge one, and I would say for any writers. Um, you know, who, who are tuning in and, and, you know, sort of thinking about these things or, or what it takes to make an idea. You know, people always ask, how do you think of bath, bathhouse? It's such a fresh, like innovative new thing. And I'm like, actually, it's not at all. There are no new ideas. I just took other ideas that have been out forever. As you mentioned, psychological suspense has been in vogue forever. These stories, we've seen them all before. Um, and I just made it, you know, got to access my own lived experiences as an author. Um, to uh, infuse the story with those. And I don't think it's a coincidence that when I was able to access that, um, that resulted um, in, in the biggest book deal of my life. Um, and, you know, I think that, I think readers, readers know, um, can tell whether it's the author themselves or not, it's out of their control, whether or not it's, they're really uh, leaning in or, or if they're flinching or if they don't have the lived experience to sort of, to tell a certain kind of story. So um, I guess I, I was definitely inspired by Hitchcock for sure, just from the, the steel and the ideas, certainly would never be able to do it, do anything like that, um, but, but making it, making it me for other people who are either like me or just want a good story and it doesn't matter who, who the story is hinging on. Yeah, and I know we're not going to jump to the end yet, and I know we're spoiling everything, but <laughs> like when I I remember when I got to that moment, I was messaging Mary um, because of hearing the performance, and I said, "Mary, this is giving me flashbacks to girl on a tr girl on the train in those final moments, um, or just how everything, even Rebecca by uh, Daphne de Maurier, Maurier. I always try to do the fr French pronunciation, but." Um, how the house is burning like you really build up to that end and it is so fast-paced and exciting what happens in the final moments but I did want to just follow up and ask you mentioned about your first novel so how did you get that book contract for your first novel? I know when writers are interviewing writers, that's the, <laughs> tell us the secrets. Like, what did you do? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I'm just, it's like when I'm in conferences and I'm like on a panel with a bunch of agents and it's authors in the room, I'm just like, there's no reason why I'm even going to say open my mouth. No one's here to, to talk to me. It's, you know, cause I'm the same way when, you know, when I was sitting in those, we always want to know um, the journey. And I, I'll preface it by saying there's a billion different ways um, to, to ink a book deal and everyone's path is different. And they're becoming more um, different as we, as we, you know, uh, have new technologies and the new world, new kind of realities that we, um, that we live in. So this is just an in of one. Um, and, you know, the only thing that can like, you know, uh, reject you from this industry or get you cut out of this industry is, is, is if you quit. Um, so I would, I would sort of uh, preface it by that, but I actually got my book deal um, on Twitter. Um, so I had written a manuscript, um, which was querying. Um, so for folks you know, who might not know, um, I know we, we, we do for sure. It's just the, the process of getting, you know, 300 words, a business correspondence to a literary agent telling them, trying to convince them why they should represent your books uh, or your work, because, you know, many um, publishers, certainly all the big big publishers only accept manuscripts from agents. So they're sort of like the quality control gatekeeper, like interface to, to, becoming, um, to becoming an author. 
that book was ranking up all kinds of rejections. Um, you know, I queried other manuscripts before that. Um, so I've, I've opened like close, to, like well over 200, I can say, um, no's. Um, but of course it only takes one yes. And that yes is nothing to do with all of those no's. Um, so that gets back to the, just like keep going, um, uh, you know, sort of thing. Um, but I, uh, there was a Twitter pitch contest called um, DV Pit. I don't know if y'all have heard of it. I, I believe it's still going on and is, 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 is quite large now. It was back um, in 20, was it 2016, 2017, when the own voices hashtag started to become something that was regularly used in YA, but hadn't kind of come over to MySpace yet. Um, and at the time, the rule was, you know, as long as the creator um, is diverse, you know, that's, that was the only sort of, sort of thing. And so, you know, I was like, well, I, I was afraid to write gay people in this, but I am. So I'm going to, you know, pitch this. And, and uh, I wound up finding an editor um, who wanted it. And so I uh, took that deal or that offer and, and took it to all the literary agents that were considering the, the book um, and uh, wound up with um, Chris Bucci, my agent now, uh, with Avatos, who's absolutely incredible. And in that first conversation, because I had written Bathhouse at that point, I said, you know, I need someone to rep this deal to make it the best it can be. But I also have this really super queer book that you've got to be down, um, down to, to shop. And he's been just the biggest advocate. He has pushed it, um, you know, during times when I was ready to just say, like, I, there's too much going on in life. I can't. Um, and so that was sort of my roundabout way uh, to getting an agent. Um, but so there's so many, so many, certainly uh, different paths. Yeah. That was mine. Twitter. <laughs> Twitter <laughs> and back yeah. when it was 180 characters. So those pitches were a little tougher. Wow. <laughs> But see, right, breaking down those doors, you just have to keep going. It's, right, I mean, Mary comes from the MFA background. I come from almost a PhD. I'll get there within a year. But it's the same advice about even just academic projects or editing um, articles that you get out there that are peer reviewed is everyone asked me my advice of even how do you get grants? And I said, email, cold call. <laughs> Don't take no. Like if they say no, turn to someone else. You just have to keep going because you're going to get a lot of rejections. Like you said, over 200 rejections. I mean, but you kept going. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, and, and that's such a great point too. I mean, it's like, you know, when it's talking about things like grants or funds development or like whatever, it's like, that's, it gets back to being a storyteller, um, which is why I think all writers should explore these sorts of things, you know, uh, telling folks a beginning, a middle and an end and leave them asking questions. And if they want to know the answer, it's like, give you the grant money or whatever else. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. It's the same thing. You know, I, I come from originally an academic background, so I, I have gone through the PhD process. It's way different, uh, and you know, for, for me than, than y'all, but certainly got friends, um, uh, you know, that have been through, through that as well. And, and you're right. There are so many opportunities, um, particularly for folks who, um, have been, you know, traditionally kept out of, um, opportunities or when they are welcomed into those spaces, you know, it's, it's, there's not the same opportunities afforded uh, to, to them as, you know, um, uh, folks who look, who look like me, yeah. uh, you know, um, and so recognizing that what you have to say in your story and your voice, whether that's your voice going into a PhD dissertation or the, the things, you know, or an MFA or the things that you're doing, you know, um, uh, in your programs and with your friends and communities, like trusting that that is so important. And also, I know it's so hard 
um, to imagine this at the time, and there's no way I ever would have, but recognizing that those gatekeepers, so whether it's the literary agents or the editors or, or whoever, or the gatekeepers that you have in your, in what you're, in your world um, that you navigate, those are people just like you. You're smarter than some of them, at least in some ways, and you're not as smart as others, you know, like we all are. Um, but these are people that are not God. And it's their word, they're not the arbiters of taste and what we need. Readers are the arbiter of what we need. And what we've seen um, through books like, you know, look at like S.A. Cosby's Blacktop Wasteland um, and Razorblade Tears, which came out this year. You know, this is a black Southern author from a rural community that did not fit the kinds of uh, images that plenty of gatekeepers had of a character like that, or a character like Oliver, or so many other books. Um, and, and we're like not going to take the risk on uh, that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, it's like, why don't you let readers decide? So if I can just get in front of readers and they say no, that's fine. And I'll accept that. I've tried everything, but I need, I need to get there. So do not stop until you get there. We need all those voices. We need you in our boardrooms and on our bookshelves. Um, mm -hmm. So be tenacious. And that's so easy to say. Yes. Hear, hear <laughs> to all of that. Whoa. Amen. You just like Hallelujah. quote DJ, DJ for... <laughs> Uh, being the spokesperson for creative writers. Um, <laughs> it's like you're running, you know, for a union rep job, but well, <laughs> I love it. No. So mm -hmm. I know Mary had something to ask about the plot, um, your planning of plot. So um, Mary, do you want to ask that? Uh, Cause then I want to follow up with something. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, did you always plan to write like true crime or like crime thrillers or was this kind of something that it just fit the story and that's why it took that direction? I believe your other story is also like is true crime or is like a crime story like you said. So, um, you know, just curious, is that was that always like your thought out genre? Like, is that what you thought you were going to set out to do or did it kind of just fall into your lap? Yeah, that's a great question. Usually if the, if the question has like, did you plan in it? Um, the answer is like, no, I did not. <laughs> like, clearly, that'll be the common theme um, through everything. But that's, it's a great question because I experimented and fell into it. So um, when I started deciding I was going to be, you know, write makeup lies on MS Word and try to sell them, um, at the time, you know, I, I read in a lot of different genres. Um, and so I get excited by a lot of different things. I was like, I'm going to write the next Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be like, I have, I love, you know, classical antiquity. So instead of like medieval stuff, it'll be like Alexandria and Carthage and like whatever. And create idea. Um, and it's like the worst book in the world. It's eight points of view. It's like 250,000 horrible words that my husband was the first piece of writing that he read from me. And he couldn't even like cultivate the energy to lie about like how engaging it. He was like, it's so good. Um, it's not. And so, but I realized like, you know, obviously improving writing and craft through that process. But I was like, I'm not interested in all the things that I love when I come to a, a book like that, a high fantasy or speculative book, um, the cast of thousands, the geopolitics, all those sorts of things. I was much more interested in the, uh, close relationships between characters, the family dynamics, the toxicity, the secrets, those sorts of things. That's what I was focusing on. So my next manuscript, I kind of got a little bit closer. Uh, I made it like near future dystopian thriller, um, which also was not super great, but a little better. Um, and, and, you know, it allowed me to start to realize this is the, the space I can thrive. Um, you know, as a, as a queer man, 
grew up closeted in the South, you know, as, as we know, like so much of my formative years are spent lying to people, um, uh, you know, not maliciously, but for survival or, or because of expectations. And so it's an interesting um, thing that engages me, this idea of what's inside our heads and hearts being so different um, from, from what's outside. And so I experimented my way into fiction or to crime fiction that in, in that. I'm also really interested in societal ideas, again, power dynamics, what's broken. Um, back in my medical days, you know, the best way to, to learn how, you know, the human body works is what happens when it, when it breaks down. So, in, you know, adult cancer is a great example. Um, and so, you know, what better way to explore, you know, the world we live in um, than in a genre where it's, where it's broken um, and also where readers not only let you be incredibly honest, um, but expect it. Um, and, you know, keep your sympathetic characters and all that bullshit as long as it's empathy and we, we're down for the ride. Um, that's what they love. So that's kind of, that's my jam, I discovered. Trial yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. and error. <laughs> Would you yeah. say that you're more like Oliver than Nathan, I'm guessing? Like if when you were writing this, would you say more of yourself is in Oliver than in Nathan? That's a great question. I've never had that before. And, and it's a good question too, because, you know, there's so much of like, there's no way an author can write, in, can write anything fictional or not and, and not draw on things that either are from themselves, people they know or they've seen or experienced. Hmm. Um, and for both Nathan and Oliver, I think there's, there are parts of me um, in both. Um, there's a, you know, there's a side of me um, that I, I don't really get access anymore because I professionally, this is what I get to do. I get to uh, jump on podcasts and have a good time. Um, at, but, you know, I can be very professional and I can, and I know what it's like to, to be very ambitious and driven career wise. Um, you know, again, mine was coming from a place of insecurity, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm gay and I have all this, these, you know, issues with uh, my, my hometown and community. So I'll just go get all these terminal degrees and that'll, that'll fix it. Um, and so I kind of can get that. I can get um, the importance of, you know, I, I, so I'm sometimes too um, preoccupied um, with, you know, what the least important people in my life think, you know, as, and, and, and take for granted what the most important people um, in my life think oftentimes because we get so busy and things seem like a big deal and they're not. So I, I get that. Um, but as far, there's a whole nother side of me, um, which makes all kinds of mistakes, is messy, um, basically never can read, don't do this, like I'll read it, and, and it's like, I gotta go do it and make these mistakes, and that's how I'll learn, um, or, see, or see someone else doing it. So um, I've, re I've related to both of them in different ways, um, at different parts uh, in my life, and, and you know, I, like for Nathan's character in general, I've been on dates with people like that. Mm. Um, who have done outrageous, you know, I'm in grad school, have no money, uh, my stipend, like, cannot afford uh, to go out for, you know, I can blow a stipend what, in one month, um, at one night, um, uh, out at some bar, but going out with people like that, who can do that, who are trying to impress me, and, and do ridiculous things, like ordering dinner for, and, you know, I can laugh about it later, but I think, well, what if um, I did not have food security. And what if, you know, those were, that was a high calorie meal, and it'd be really great to have a second one. What if I felt like I needed to be in someone like that's company. So it's a combination of, you know, myself, uh, people I know and things that have happened. And then of course my anxiety and catastrophizing about what would happen um, if, you know, this grinder hookup I'm showing up at one o'clock in the morning, mildly inebriated, um, takes, you know, takes a turn for the, for, for the worse, which of course it very much can. Um, yeah. Yeah. So even though we've all made this, you know, 
we, we enter into a trust uh, in an app like that and say, you know, this is what we're here for. It's safe. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're still afraid uh, and things happen for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was also going to just, this is great because those who are listening, you don't see I'm wearing my favorite Oscar Wilde shirt, but I was so listening to the performance and I have to mention them, Michael Crouch and Daniel Henning, which Mary realized Henning, we wanted to ask, did you realize that Daniel Henning is also the last name of the detective that you create? <laughs> yeah, I did. That was a coincidence. I, okay. um, and, and it's, it's, I, I am the laziest world builder. So it's like, I will, I will not invent a house. It's like, I'll go over to a friend's house and be like, that's great. I just need to look at everything. Cause I just need to put it in a book. Um, and the same, you know, I'm like, oh, I need a name for something. And so it's like, let's just go on Facebook and just like scroll really quickly or whatever. Oh, um, okay. But it was an uncommon name that I didn't really quite realize how uncommon it was until uh, uh, Daniel Henning um, uh, pointed it out. And I got to say, um, Michael Crouch and Daniel Henning are, they brought, they breathe life to this book. Like I could have never imagined. And I spent a good part of my launch day when I should have been doing other stuff, listening to that book for the first time, um, because I've never been able to consume it, uh, as a, as a reader and I'm way too close to the words. And the second I hear other people and their acting and their talent bring to life this story in their, through their lens. It was like looking at a brand new story and it scared the hell out of me. And I made all of these like editorial choices to gin up feelings and readers and, and be manipulative that way. And then I'm listening to it and I'm like, oh my God, like what monster did this? Like, stop, this is, you know, I, I'm like, let's name the kid in the snuff film and give him a story so people will be upset about it. Um, and then I'm listening to it and I'm like, oh my God, stop, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so they, killed it yeah they were so Mm -hmm. good and it's why I mean I have a feeling I'm just throwing it manifesting it but I feel like your book is going to be acquired by a film production company um and I mean is there anything to that I would I would love that too I would absolutely love that's what I'll say (laughs) okay um but just hearing their performance, I mean, like you said, the snuff film moment is really um, viscerally disgusts you listening, just hearing their vulnerability, um, Christian's accent, for example, um, right? Oliver, and this is where I really, why I always encourage people to listen to an audio version. And, you know, if they want to after read the text, I mean, I think both really help inform each other because I really got nuances of um, Nathan and Oliver from just the delivery of the actors that Oliver sounded very anxious, very insecure in his voice, um, where Nathan was very measured, very, I do this, I do that, I do this, I'm taking care of you, and I might be very narcissistic. Like mm-hmm. I was getting a lot of this narcissistic tendency in the Klein family. And, um, you know, that's where I saw Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray. Like I was, I felt this was a really almost Dorian Gray um, narcissism plot. Like, were you very conscious of that narcissistic psychological element with the Klein family? Yes, one a billion percent. Um, certainly, you know, at, on a, on a surface level, um, 
And I think if Nathan was a real character, a real person, he would say the same thing, although he would be lying to himself. Um, you know, the motivation for, you know, you've got this physician or trauma surgeon who's, you know, a decade older than this kid who's hit rock bottom before the story even starts. Um, and, you know, he's got a, he's, you know, has substance abuse issues. You use substances professionally every single day. There's just such a, a extraordinary power um, uh, imbalance um, between those two characters. And, uh, and I, I'm like, where, where do we go? <laughs> this is the part where I'm like, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> what was the question? Oh, oh no, 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 just about narcissism yeah. and like the unreliability yeah. that you use. Absolutely. And so, but the truth is, uh, so he would, so he's got a savior syndrome and he's like, you know, we can look at their relationship and say, this is a horrible idea. He looks at it and he's like, I've got the training. This kid's in trouble. You know, I, I'm, I have my own motivations. I think I'm in love. I'm infatuated, whatever else I'm in lust. I don't know. Um, a combination of all, all of the above, um, at, at first. Um, but you know, it's, they've, it, what's really going on is narcissistic, um, hedonism, I think, um, someone who's a narcissist, they're not, you know, I don't think, I don't think, although I'm not qualified to say, um, what characters are what, but I, I didn't intentionally write beyond maybe, uh, Christian, <laughs> um, uh, whose, whose motives aren't, aren't necessarily as central to the plot as, as all, as Oliver and Nathan's, um, but I didn't write a sociopath, um, in, into this book, uh, as, a, as Nathan or, or Oliver, um, and there are all sorts of other, uh, uh, mindsets and experiences that that make people who they are, um, mm. such as you know uh, Nathan growing up with the Kleins, this moneyed East Coast family um, with extraordinary extraordinary amount of order and routine and expectations. And you know we we were just talking about how hard writing is, and you've just got to like keep being tenacious. You know I don't know that Nathan ever thought that he would be anything but um, you know uh, this this trauma surgeon and, and get through this kind of stuff. Um, and so he's absolutely you have to be. Um, narcissistic to, to delude yourself, I think, in, in the way that Nathan specifically does. Um, and to be honest, there's a lot of narcissism in, you know, particularly, you know, cis white gay men. Um, mm -hmm. And so that the narcissism, the veneers um, that, that we put up, uh, the money veneers, the, the homogeneity of a lot of our spaces. And, you know, when you look at friend, friend groups and, and those sorts of things. And so, um, you know, it's, I, there was no way I'm going to write about, you know, that community without um, trying to tackle uh, a lot of those and, ha and have those characters represented or those ideas represented and, and how um, claustrophobic and oppressive um, they can be in totally different ways. Um, Nathan's home is just as oppressive in a totally different way as Oliver's, the home Oliver came from so in, in many ways. So yeah, such a long rambling. Answer. No, no, oh, no, no. It's all so good. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting, like just because I didn't, I read, I didn't re listen to the audiobook, but I read the book. And for me, my journey with Nathan, I don't know. I've part of me really just wanted to sympathize with him as this guy, like, because I saw him more as a guy who fell in love with someone who's down on their luck. Mm. But the way you tell this story, obviously, we find out that it's a little more than just that. There is this power dynamic. There is this savior complex that Nathan has. But for me, trying to figure out which of the two characters I could trust, 
I felt like Oliver was going to be the more trustworthy one, but he just never pulled. Like I could feel like it was so hard for him to pull through for me until the end. But the same thing with Nathan, I didn't realize how narcissistic and Mm -hmm. just controlling he was until the end, because you, the way he talks about Oliver in some of the parts, it's just so sweet and loving that you're like, like when they get engaged, I was like, yes, this is, this is great. Their relationship's going to be okay. Oh, they're going to be fine. Yeah, you're like, oh, and he didn't like murder anyone. Later, I was like, oh, never mind. This is not how this yeah, is going. Yeah, you're like, oh, he's not running from the law. <laughs> not at all. Uh, oh. I, I appreciate that. That's exactly what I tried to do. I wanted their the sympathy, you know, readers have for both characters to be inverse. Um, you know, because we open the book with Oliver doing something, you know, objectively unlikable. And you know from their relationship, it's not like they have any sort of open relationship or they've discussed, like it's very clear that this is something that would not be okay and would be interpreted um as as infidelity. And that's objectively unlikable. And I'm like, how do I get people to root for him at least to, enough to know does he deserve to die for this yet? Um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, we've got Nathan, who's who's the the victim here um, at the beginning, the the cut the cuckold, uh, mm-hmm. so so to yeah. speak. After all, he's done, um, you know, for for Oliver. And then, yeah, you find out that um, you know, in much the same way, Oliver finds out um, that there's a lot of gaslighting going on, and a lot of motives don't match um, words and actions. And maybe the people who love you the most don't have your um, best interests in mind. After all, they've got their own. Yeah, because of narcissism. And I think everyone will always ask, oh, Andrew, can you just like sit back and be a passive reader? I mean, I don't think anyone's ever a passive reader, but I think I'm always just skeptical anytime I open. That's why I love psychological suspense as a genre, because I'm always just trying to figure out how you, the author, are putting red herrings or um, trying to like convince us like how Mary felt like I was always just curious why Nathan was having shorter chapters or why I wasn't getting into Nathan's psyche like I was with Oliver so my ways of interpreting was either like the clue board game oh Oliver is like an Edgar Allan Poe narrator and is extremely unreliable and is hallucinating like I kept saying to Mary maybe he's just hallucinating like because I always go that that route but um, then I was thinking, wait, PJ's being really clever by limiting how much we see of Nathan's interior. And it's not what meets the eye. And like you said, that's what you wanted. You wanted us to fall for this trick of taking Nathan as being more reliable and, you know, thinking that, oh, Oliver is right. He's um, has been addicted to painkillers or is drinking again or um, doesn't know where he is. So why would we believe him? Um, Right. And Mm -hmm. you bring that thread all the way through to the end with us trying to even believe Nathan's mother, Kathy and her judgment of Oliver. Um, Mm -hmm. But, oh my gosh. And Kathy screaming over her son. (laughs) Whoo. That was. (laughs) Like that to me was where I could just, I can see it all playing out on the screen because it is such a, um, a visceral novel. Like you really Mm -hmm. do give us a play by play and it's done so well. 
And I, I'm sorry. Sorry. (laughs) No, I was going to say like, just to speak to that, like even at the end when, you know, everything is, or at least, you know, you're starting to get an idea. Like in my mind, I had started thinking when Nathan bought the fentanyl and then you find out Christian died again, extreme spoilers, everyone. I literally ruined a huge part of the book. (laughs) warned. Yeah, they were warned. They were warned. <laughs> they were warned already, but I'm warning you again. If you haven't finished it, you might want to wait. Um, but it wasn't until Christian winds up dead of an overdose that I was like, okay, maybe it's Nathan. But then you throw this whole like off track, and then you see the mo- like his mother picking up his phone, and you think it's her. Like for a good five seconds, I was convinced. I was like, I had this mm-hmm. wrong. It's no, hard. and I did too. I said to Mary, it's Kathy. She's the <laughs> one who's trying to kill Oliver. Um, I, yeah. yeah. It's, it, you know, it, I love, I love hearing, hearing y'all say that. And, you know, just to behind the scenes sort of thing and um, how these, how the book that's on shelves is so different from where, I, from where it began. I actually, and, you know, this gets back to the two points of view as well. I wrote the, you know, the original first, the very rough, very rough first draft is just Oliver's POV. It's just, um, mm. you know, it's mostly his story as it is still, um, but it, you know, was bare bones. And, you know, I had caricature stand-ins for different characters. So the Nathan in that draft would read like, you know, if I, if I ever let someone see it, uh, would read like a lifetime movie husband, you know, sleeping with the enemy. We've all seen, because it's like, I need to figure out Oliver, we'll deal with you later. And it was way later um, when I was like, you know, I always try to write scenes from the point of view who, of whoever has the most to lose, um, because that's just a great tension source, uh, regardless um, of, of what kind of story you're telling. And I realized there are so many instances where Nathan had just as much to lose um, as Oliver. So that's where the, that point of view started coming in. And that's when even myself, when I was writing it, I started to get a little sad um, about, about Nathan when I, you know, when you really dive into why and what and, and what's going on. Um, so that's sort of how that all kind of came together. And um, even the Kathy Klein thing and that sort of like last twist, those are all like sort of later stage additions as I finally got the space in my plate to say, okay, now that we've got the story down, um, how can we throw curveballs? How, again, how can we, I mean, literally manipulate and gaslight the reader in the same way that me as a reader wants to be, um, mm-hmm. wants to wants to sort of follow along with. So. Uh, that's when those real sort of fun secondary characters or moments of, oh, it'd be cool if Kathy picked up the phone kind of come forward. So yeah. writing is revising. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. And if it's okay, I'd like to get into the house. Like just literally even your decision to use the German, like why did you use H-A-U-S instead of, you know, yeah. H-O-U-S-E? H-O-U-S-E. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's there was a reason behind that. I'm like, why is this? Um, you know, how did you even decide on just this cruising spot of the bathhouse, which is such a central figure for gay men and privacy is everything. But here, privacy is exactly what Oliver doesn't need in this traumatic situation. So yeah. it was such an interesting choice of a gay touchstone. So, yeah. How did you decide on the bathhouse? Yeah, I mean, I guess for the name first, that's an easy one. I just liked the way it sounded. It, like, I, you know, it's, it's just like, I, it has a certain, it's with any proper noun on the page. There's something about like, 
you know, does it sit well with me? Um, does it have an edge to it? Is it, you know, is it aggressive and filled with hard consonants or is it soft and like a little more lyrical? And it's just like this, it's something about like, I'm like, that's the word. Um, I like that word, that's great. Um, and then as far as like, but choosing a place like that, certainly, you know, a lot of the book has to do with, um, you know, this transition between um, generations of, of, of queer folks. And you've got, you know, someone like Nathan who grew up in a different time, um, maybe, you know, pre grinder uh, and those sorts of things um, where, you know, bathhouses and gay bars were the only space society affords, uh, affords folks. And, or if you're interested in finding someone who's like you, you know, you can't get on grinder and, and, and you can't hit on someone in a random South Carolina redneck bar or, you know, like whatever else. Um, so, you know, it felt natural to kind of go to a place like that where it wouldn't be um, entirely expected for Oliver who would have access to um, these sorts of apps and things to be. Um, and, you know, what risk and what stakes come uh, along with that um, when we're existing in these spaces on the edges of society um, and the only spaces that we have. And, you know, so that felt natural. And then of course, I just wanted to open it um, with a scene that was gripping enough that, you know, a literary agent, and then that would translate into readers, would, would hopefully not be able um, to stop. And I thought, like, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? What's your biggest fear every time you're, you know, you're meeting someone for sex that you've never met before or whatever else? Like, and it's that. And so I'm like getting almost strangled to death in a bathhouse seems like a gripping um, way to do it. And uh, and then, of course, I took a lot, some creative liberties to, to try to um, make House into a more uh, uh, cinematic experience, you know, than, than I may have had in, in like similar, likewise, uh, establishments, you know, I'm not even sure if you can drink in a bath. House, but I'm like in this book we need liquor in this, in this yeah. scene. In a whatever. Russian bathhouse you mm -hmm. can because I've been to the famous one on Wall Street in Manhattan so okay. it's actually a very big on all men um, I never went to the all men days I was in like the integrated days uh, which is even odd to say about gender but that is even the dynamic with the bathhouse um, but no there's like tea rooms and restaurants and sometimes you get cigar areas yeah um, this one's trashy <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I have my location if it becomes a film. So film agents out there, I will show you the man. Like, I mean, I know that that part's in DC, but, um, you know, She's if it's in Manhattan, I can find the Manhattan area. There we go. <laughs> but I do, you know, want to also ask just um, for listeners of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, because I've been so open about being a sexual assault survivor that, right, that is a really key moment of a soul and um, the way that you are so masterfully able to take Oliver's PTSD and maybe that even goes back to how I say about his narrative style that he questions himself all the time, um, is very nervous to take agency over his life. Um, a lot of that I saw as PTSD, like he's not able to process his trauma and so I was wondering, how were you able to walk that tightrope so much with assault, PTSD, trauma? Like, were you very, very conscious all the time when you were writing Oliver's uh, dialogue? Yeah, uh, one billion percent. Um, and, and I really appreciate that question. Certainly it, um, it's the whole book is uh, catalyzed and predicated 
um, by a vicious uh, moment in which Oliver has control completely um, taken away from him. Um, and I, I know like from a high level standpoint, he's like, as you said, he is afraid to take agency and it's better if someone else has control or he doesn't think he's worthy of control, but, I, but on a very primal level control um, over his body, over his mind, over himself, his life, what, what, not what's going to happen to him next year, but what's going to happen to him in one minute. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when, when, when we have, um, when that happens, um, to someone, and it certainly can happen in so many different ways, unfortunately, and, and does all the time. Um, and I would suspect um, a great, 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 great numbers of, to, to great numbers of people um, uh, who, for the very same reason, um, it's when that happens to you, you feel humiliated and you feel uh, ashamed and you feel so. Um, this is like why the last thing that you want you want to do is rearticulate that um, to someone who's trying to help you or whatever else. It's so easy to just pretend something didn't happen or try to rewrite a narrative in your head. Um, and I think you know on, on the page Oliver does that um, with you know he wouldn't go to the police. Um, I if I had been in Oliver's situation and I thought I got away alive, I would not um, would not go to the police certainly. Um, if, if I was like, okay, we're, we're just going to get rid of these bruises and it'll be fine. Um, and that just propels him and his character and his decision-making and people are fresh, you know, can get frustrated, um, about the decisions that he makes or the poor communication or all that kind of stuff. But, um, to me, and, and I think to the folks who like, like the story, that's very real. Mm -hmm. Um, and those decisions are the kinds of decisions people should not take, but, but we, but we do, um, oftentimes. Um, and it's, driven by uh, this, you can't take control away from people and expect them to just operate um, the way that they were. And that's what happens. And it's a devastating thing. And it's something um, that that changes a, changes a person. And, you know, yeah. Oliver didn't have a lot of space to figure out who he was before, um, before that happened. Uh, and that just kind of shuts the door um, in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, on that and, and catalyzes the whole book, um, which is about shame, uh, and control and not just for the assault because the assault amplifies a message of shame. That's already, um, been fed to him, uh, his entire life. So it's, I remember being, you know, a, a younger kid and thinking like, oh, I would love to be gay married, but what happens if I get gay divorced? I can't tell, you know, it's like the, there's, there's no room for the failure part, mm -hmm. um, which is, the part that's there all the time. Yeah. yeah, become because you become tokenized that you know, you have to be even better. Like you have to, right? And especially if you're queer and a person of color, the like double stigma is even, you know, cuz I kept thinking about that about race, especially with Hector. Um I mean, it's not I think is it specified that Hector's white PJ? I think he's Italian. I think in, I, I don't know if it's specified, but I think in my head I had him as a, like Italian. <laughs> it's interesting because I read him as Latino, and maybe yeah, that was I just the too, way, actually, but... like because of the name. Um, yeah. But and that's why I even like saw Hector as wanting to be even more closeted, or even felt even a. I don't know. My sympathy went to Oliver and Hector. Yeah. Um, especially Hector, I felt, but even though he broke Oliver's physical boundary. And, um, right. And then I think there's so much about 
personal boundaries broken as a unified theme um, where even at the end, and I don't know if Mary, you felt this way, but with Nathan, I was thinking, okay, so what is, what was the moment where Nathan really did just, um, I'll say it, fuck everything up. Like, where did he just break Oliver's boundaries? And for me, it was when he started to take on Christians, um, almost in a way molded himself into, um, becoming Christian. Like there's almost this, like, especially when he starts to choke Oliver, I mean, it's like, he now is Christian. Like they're almost Mm -hmm. one of the same coin and, you know, Christian broke Nathan's rules by wanting to strangle his uh, partner. Um, But then Oliver, but then Nathan doesn't trust Oliver anymore because Oliver knows too much about Nathan killing Christian. So now Nathan is going to extinguish Oliver's life. So it's like just this right layer upon layer um, way that you develop that so suspensefully and masterfully as a thriller. But it is Oliver is going to take back his voice and he does. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, he kills Nathan. But I mean, does Oliver have a chance? Like, does Oliver have any other way to get out of there without having to? defend himself yeah i mean i think he was just like you said uh he was on his way out out life um just like he was with christian and being strangled and you're right there's no daylight um between you know the the monster whether the monster breaks their leash or not or stays on it um who's doing this horrible physical violent thing um to another human being and the person that wants that thing to happen and you know just doesn't do it themselves. So they pay someone to do something. Um, so they are like, there's no, what's the, like, what is the difference b- between the two, even if they think they have different outcomes in mind. Um, and, you know, it's, it's truly not, I think I, this is funny. I don't know if I've shared this before, but I, I let my therapist read, uh, read bathhouse. Cause I, you know, we talk about books and all that kind of stuff. And she was like, she was like, oh my gosh, the decompensation and Nathan at the end. And she starts going through all, you know, all these sorts of uh, we, we have this whole discussion about it um, because that's who he is. That's the mask. Uh, that's who he is. And it's fine. As long as there's no pressure, there's, you know, the, there's, everything's great. The second something is off a little bit, that ma- like that mask starts to slip. Um, mm-hmm. And if, when, when things really get derailed, that's when you, you get to meet um, the person who's been sleeping next to you the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Kathy is really all about keeping up appearances and perfectionism, which is an anxiety. Um, and, um, not cracking the veneer, right. Which is what basically leads the Klein family to crumble. Yeah. Um, so be authentic. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but I know, yeah, go ahead, man. I was gonna say, speaking of the Klein family, I was curious just because I couldn't fully get a read on what Kathy's motives fully were. Um, so I was wondering, do you is Kathy homophobic or is she just super overprotective of Nathan? Because I kind of got undertones of both and felt really difficult to try and navigate as some like, so is she or isn't she? <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah. She's, I mean, I would say she's homophobic and uh, misogynistic um, and uh, as is Nathan. Nathan's extraordinarily misogynistic um, uh, throughout, throughout the book uh, as well. Um, casually racist, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm certain as well. Um, and, you know, it's, 
as far as like what her motives are, she she knows more about her son um, than than anyone else. So that that mask uh, that we're talking about um, that Nathan would present to 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 us and to Oliver and to everyone else um, is all that we know about him. And it seems like you would trust him in a crisis. Certainly, it checks all the right boxes. Um, but she knows. Um, that there is something darker there. She's a, you know, she, she makes a comment at one point about, um, you know, your father also has his playthings, but your father doesn't break them. Mm. Um, and so he, she believes, um, truthfully, and in reality, uh, that if, if this continues, you know, Oliver's going to be injured or hurt or murdered, not that she cares so much, um, but she would certainly care if her son got caught. Um, and was suffering the consequences through that. So it's like that protection, the same kind of protection mode kicks in that's misguided and a little bit more of a caricature. Um, but it's the same thing. It's like, you gotta let this kid go because I think you're gonna kill him. And why don't you, you know, there's, there's other folks from Dartmouth who I think would just be completely fine um, and have the right pedigree and like won't bother you and won't rock our boat kind of a thing, uh, which is disgusting. Um, mm. But also, you know, people are like that. Um, and it's what so, I say yeah. about beautiful having grown up in right upper middle class suburbia. Mary and I grew up very close to each other, but the houses are beautiful. But the skeletons behind those houses, you have to be nervous when people put up fronts or keep up with the Joneses. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're not going through psychological dilemmas. And that's why I really thought I know we're nearing the end of the time, but I have to say about the setting just that you choosing Manhattan and that type of um, caliber, right? The type of living, the type of arts community that you would think that there's a lot of progressivism, but you really do show the other side, which is that wealth doesn't come necessarily with progressive values. And like Kathy Klein is very invested in maintaining her privilege and status at all costs, where- oh. Right. Oliver mm -hmm. is coming from Indiana, which I why I think those chapters are so necessary in the Indiana moments that um, he actually is the one who's trying to get his authentic authenticity across and also his identity. Um, and you would think that, oh, no, no, the one in New York would understand his sexuality better than someone from Indiana. But you show that that's not the case. And that is real life. You know, like the people in the North aren't all unified under one value. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what's the cost of that? Right. Like, you know, Oliver grew up like he got to become himself in a vacuum because he's hiding all of it. So, you know, it's 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 hiding your hard drive as opposed to like, I'd imagine the kind of parent I would be where it's like, what are you looking at? Let's talk about everything. Is everything safe? I'm, I'm a cool mom. Um, or whatever, but that in and of itself, and I've got friends who have had that kind of upbringing, I'm jealous, but they're just like, you don't understand. <laughs> it becomes a different kind of, a different kind of thing. And so Nathan is preoccupied with replicating that exact same, like, you know, wasp, patriarchal um, uh, construct, misogynistic, casually racist, built on a foundation of white supremacy, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, replicating that in like that is the ideal that everyone should be whereas Oliver's doesn't have an idea necessarily of what a queer person should be um and so uh he's actually got more latitude and and uh bandwidth to, to discover um what he thinks about things whereas those uh, values are all sort of given um to Nathan 
uh, right off the bat and work really well for him. So why is he going to change them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we thank you, PJ, for, oh, first, everyone who's listening, hopefully you've all read PJ Vernon's Bathhouse because. <laughs> if know, not, you should. You should, because it is. I mean, I'm not going to go through every review on the back of your cover, and I don't want to have you blush, but uh, <laughs> let's just say the whole literary community has banded around how much you've broke boundaries just with such an openly queer thriller. And I mean, I think you've set the stage for much more to come. Um, And even just the pink color, we don't have to go into analysis of it, but I just even love the cover of Bathhouse Mm -hmm. is, I mean, the throat, (laughs) the throat is Dracula-like, but also, um, you know, I'm so, I'm sure there's so much there to how that cover got designed. Um, But how can everyone follow you, PJ, all your social media uh, excitement? Well, thank thank you so much. And before that, I have to say thank you. Thank you all so much. It was such a pleasure finally getting to like put uh, names to faces and have this conversation and, and with questions that are that have not been asked before. Um, so I really appreciate the ability to sort of work those out with you all too. Um, it's been an absolute blast. Uh, folks can can find me at, um, at PJ Vernon Books on um, Twitter and Instagram and PJ at P- or pjvernonbooks.com um, online. Uh, certainly love love hearing from from folks and and love hearing their thoughts um, on the book if 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 they do pick it up um, and this was a blast and I'm excited I was excited to be a part of this this is great thank you Wonderful. All so much well this and we'll have to everyone who's part of our book club is now listening to this a week after so we'll have to let P J Vernon know how everyone weighs in mm-hmm. at the book club because <laughs> yes. um, I'm already my mom is even now reading Bathhouse and she's like this is a page turner. I'm like, I know, <laughs> just wait for it. Cause yeah, we're a family <laughs> that loves thrillers and horror. I mean, you know, when you mentioned Stephen King I share the same birthday as him. So I say, that's why I'm addicted to Carrie. But <laughs> well, thank you so much. And thanks for joining us in the ivory tower thank boiler you. room. Thank you. As we say here at the ivory tower boiler room let's put a bookmark in this. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room team consists of me, Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, our Editor-in-Chief, Adam Katz, our Media Director, Erica Grume, our Chief Contributor, Mary DePippi, and our Marketing Assistant, Jaren Usta. We thank you all for listening, so please make sure that you like, subscribe, and share the podcast, review it. Um, And if you can, please do donate to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, We are all volunteers here, and we do rely on donations to help build and grow the community. It helps me continue to get really exciting content and book really creative guests. So allowing for the creative writers to come, the academic writers, um, the performers to come, anyone who's literary and artistic. It just helps me continue to expand this public humanities vision. Um, Also make sure that you do follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, and you can even join our Facebook group, all at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you to Words Matter Bookstore, our sponsor. And we always are looking for interview requests or creative writing requests. Um, If you want to share your writing, if 
you think that you would be a great fit to be interviewed on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, please email us, ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com.